0: Welcome to the SportsGrad Podcast, where we empower you with the answers to your burning questions to accelerate your career into the sports industry. We are your hosts, Melbourne-based sports administrators, Ruben Williams and Ryan Walker. Join us as we share unique and personal examples as well as relatable information and deliver them to you in bite-sized, fluff-free episodes. Want to swipe our signature framework to add awesome experience to your resume? Download our free ebook Four Steps to Create Outstanding Work Experience in Sport, at sportsgrad.com.au. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of our latest episodes released every Tuesday and Thursday. Ryan, one of the things that I love about table tennis is that it improves reflexes, hand-eye coordination, and mental alertness. The other thing that is currently improving my mental alertness is my shaving routine thanks to Dollar Shave Club I'm ready to react to anything knowing I've got my starter box to help me look and feel great sports grad listeners can head to the link in our show notes to access the Dollar Shave Club starter box for just $15 plus get $10 off your second delivery inside you will find a range of top shelf grooming products perfect for both men and women so head to the show notes for more details and take advantage of that terrific offer (music) Hello and welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. I'm Ruben Williams, and with me, as always, is the imaginative Ryan Walker. Ryan, hello. And how are you? I'm fantastic, Rubes. Absolutely stoked with today's episode. We've got one of the
1: great guests coming on, uh, and I just can't wait to get started. Plenty of conversation to be had.
0: I couldn't agree more, Ryan. I am very excited for this one too. But firstly, thank you so much to you for being a part of the show today, for downloading and getting involved. We really appreciate everyone who listens. Today, we are talking with Richie Hinton about how to use a law degree to become a player agent and then a CEO. If you're listening for the first time and thinking, what is this show? Who are these two guys? The Sports Grad Podcast is your bite-sized guide to enter the sports industry. I am a graduate of Deakin University in Melbourne, and Ryan is a graduate of Notre Dame, Australia in Perth. A few years back, we both made the jump into working at Cricket Australia together, and now our aim is to help you land jobs in sport in whatever way, shape or form that may be. As I mentioned today, we are very lucky to be talking with the CEO of Table Towns Victoria, Richie Hinton. Richie graduated as a lawyer in London where he worked as a solicitor for a few years before moving to Melbourne to continue practising. He then transitioned into the sports industry as the business manager of proactive proactive sports management. From there, he took on a career as a player agent for the next 10 years. For the first half, he held the enviable role of head of soccer at TLA Worldwide, which is formerly known as ESP, where he was working as a licensed player agent specializing in in player contract negotiation, endorsement deals, and media work. He then moved on to run his own player management company for another five years. His career took its next turn at Cricket Australia, where he held the role of National Field Manager, leading the smooth rollout of junior pathway programs in cricket across the country. And now, most recently, he holds the position of CEO at Table Tennis Victoria, which is the largest state body of the sport in Australia. Richie, welcome to the Sports Grad podcast. I'm delighted to be here, guys. Lovely to reconnect with you both. It's fantastic to have you as well, Richie. We've given you quite the introduction. You've done quite a lot of things in your in your time, but most importantly, I'd imagine that our table tennis Victoria has quite the breakout room.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, the offices are actually M S A C, so we do have a pretty cool little playground. Um, we can do most things, including watch Formula One for one week in a year. Normally, so um, yeah, it's a pretty fantastic location we've got. Um, I probably don't play as much table tennis as you'd expect, because that means I've got to walk downstairs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The office is is on the second floor. But, no, it certainly is a very cool little playground down at the Melbourne Sports and Aquatic Centre. I
1: guess if anyone is, is wanting a job where, you know, there's table tennis for your breakout room, I think Table Tennis Victoria may be the spot to get a job. But, Richie, ever since Jerry Maguire was released... I think everybody has dreamed of being a player agent in their time, and this was your reality for ten years. How did you get started in the uh, the player agency game?
2: Yeah, I get asked that question a lot because obviously it's it's got some. You mentioned Jerry Maguire, and that's the the glamorous view of it. Um, and as I'll probably get onto in a little while, it's not always not always glamour. But I, I was actually a pretty uh, a pretty handy junior footballer. Unfortunately, I peaked quite early and. Um, I was involved with, um, for a short time, with a Premier League uh, youth system. So I did have that, I guess, small insight in, into um, into what it looked like um, at the elite level. And I wasn't good, as I said, until I got released and ended up being a lawyer instead. But that little, little insight into sport, you know, lit the fire. And I always wanted to work in sport, but wasn't sure what that really looked like. Um, pretty smart at school, but, you know usual story uh was no good at maths or science so that ruled out being um that ruled out being a medic couldn't draw ruled out being an architect so i was pretty good at the arty side of things you know the 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 reasoning and the writing so that means you go and do a law degree right so that's what i did (laughs) ended up playing sort of semi-pro football uh, a little bit through there through uni um and qualified as a lawyer how i got into the agency side of things is yeah, you know, a lot. There is luck in this, and you do work hard to make your own luck. But you have to hold your hands up sometimes and say there is luck involved. Um, the first bit of luck was, uh, I guess, meeting an Australian woman <laughs> in England and moving to Australia. So my my career in agency did start in Australia, which is probably counterintuitive when when obviously you can tell from my accent I'm English and there's a lot more uh, football in in England than there is in Australia. However, that also I means it's a very congested market, and probably my accent and slight background in the sport gave me um, a little point of difference here. And um, what happened was, I wasn't really enjoying my legal career. Um, didn't really love, I guess, the the industry. I've mean, I really enjoyed the training. I'd really enjoyed the academic side of the the process, but the reality of the work, the reality of the I nearly said 9 till 5 but it wasn't 9 till 5 the reality of the 8 till 8 in a law firm wasn't great for me I basically cold called and cold emailed a few and I say a few because there weren't many sports agencies in Melbourne and I I mean the more, when I say it out loud it's pretty incredible this led to anything but I did get I, I got a phone call back from you mentioned Proactive Sports in the intro and they were looking for a business manager at the time they had a uh, a, sport, a, a football management arm, and they also had a sort of soccer clinic arm, birthday parties, inflatables, that kind of thing, school holiday programs, and they were after someone to kind of put put together a business plan and a strategy for him. They were actually one of the. It was uh, it was it was a dream come true, really, because one of the one of the directors was a guy called Jesper Olsen, who I grew up watching play for Manchester United, his next Danish international, and he'd relocated to Melbourne. So I had this really surreal nine-month period when I left law and um, learnt on the job, really, with, um, you know, next to sort of someone I grew up idolizing. But that was only ever going to be a – it was a small organization. It really was almost a piece of consulting work. And six or nine months in, I wanted, you know, needed to move on. And this is where – get another sliding doors moment, I guess. Um, my wife shared an office with a guy called Peter Mann, Peter Mann, uh, something you might recall, is an ex AFL player. I believe he captained the Kangaroos and played for Frio as well. And after his football career, he ended up working for the AFLPA, and um, and then he ended up working in management consultancy, which is uh, which is the same industry my wife worked in. And they got talking, and uh, my name came up obviously, and he suggested I give his old management group a ring. And his old management group were Elite Sports Properties ESP now now TLA Worldwide. Um, some of your viewers, uh, sorry, so your listeners might be aware of it. Craig Kelly is the CEO. It's um, 1990 Collingwood player, um, obviously pretty well known, and one of the pioneers of AFL player management. And um, also worked with Rob Woodhouse, ex Olympic and um, Commonwealth swimmer. So pretty well established. And I guess it was it was it was it was in that first year, really early days of the A League. So the NSL had, had you know died a Pretty horrific, slow, very public death, and um, there was a year of no soccer in Australia back in around two thousand three, two thousand four, and the A League had replaced that. And these guys were excited at ESP about the new about the new opportunity to work in what looked like a more professional football environment than had been uh, previously in the NSL. They'd lost the ethnic connotations that created some tension, and they'd gone down the one city, one team. Um, route. Uh, John O'Neill was the CEO at the time who had some rugby credibility and Frank Lowy was on board with the FFA as chair so they're pretty excited and um, again the legal background I I dipped my toe into sports management albeit really embryonically with proactive and my you know short background as a junior with an EPL team I guess was enough to for them to take a chance on me and you know, I'll be forever grateful to them. It was a great learning process, worked with some really great people who have had long careers in sports management and are now list managers at AFL clubs or things like that. Um, And that's how I got into the player management side of things. So there is luck in it. And I was talking to, I actually presented to some students just last week on this point. And somebody asked me the question, how much luck was involved? And of course, there. There is luck in as much as you need those sliding door moments. You need to ask the right question to the right person at the right time in in their organisational cycle. But on the other hand, I did train a lot to be, you know, I did play a lot of football as a junior. I did spend nine years doing law. So there was a lot of hard work that went into that that luck as well. But there's no doubt I was fortunate and um, there's not many people would – I guess could be as fortunate for me to have those couple of little breaks early on, which really, you know, were very important stepping stones to set me up for the rest of my career today. Richie, most importantly, what club in the APL were you playing with? Leeds, Leeds, and uh, the next question Ooh. that everyone always asks me in Australia is, were you there at the same time as Harry Kewell? And the honest answer is that uh, yes but I don't remember him other than I do have this vague recollection. I do have a vague recollection of a kid with a weird accent turning up and being pretty good. Um, And I think that was probably him. But um, again, this is all hindsight. I've looked at, because the question gets asked me so often. I do, I I have looked back and I think we did overlap by a few months. Um, But I think it was pretty, you know, I was out the door pretty quickly and he soon moved on from the juniors (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, he is my hero. So if you still know him, we'd love to get him on the podcast at some point. (laughs) You can tell tell you some stories about Crawley Town. (laughs) (laughs) Richie, there's no one way to become a player agent. So what are some of the skills and attributes you think you need to be successful in this space?
2: You're absolutely right. There is no easy way to become a player agent. And I am yet to see an advert that says player agent required apply within. It doesn't exist, that job advert, unfortunately. And I sometimes I sometimes feel that sports management courses are a little bit unfortunately named and perhaps it should be named sports administration courses to give people a little bit more of a realistic expectation of a career that they're likely to have. To answer your question directly, the skills you need, you need to be personal. You need to be able to build relationships fundamentally, whether that's with the players you know, or their parents, depending on their age, whether it's with clubs whether it's with the pfa whether it's with chairman whether it's with potential investors whether it's with sponsors you've really got to get on with people and i know that there are some famously arrogant agents out there that you know people want to hang their hat on those guys but you can only re- if you want to carry on like that you really got to have a lot of runs on the board before you, be- you can become uh, uh mina rayola or somebody like that and and you, you read all those stories that's you know that's the zero point one percent of of agency. It really is. You've got to be tough, mentally tough. I mean, you've got to be resilient. There's a lot more nos than yeses in this in that job. And for every for every deal that goes through, or every player that you sign to your company, or every contract that you negotiate, every transfer that you negotiate, the amount of work that's gone into those wins is difficult to describe it really is there is is such a lot of work to to especially when you're trying to establish yourself in the early days if you haven't got the reputation there is a certain snowball effect once you got to a certain size and certainly after the first few years working as a player agent it became you could talk about the deals that you've done rather than trying to have to justify and explain your skill set you could just hang your hat on the deals that you've done to a certain extent but yeah, you've got to be tough. You've got to be resilient. You've got to have a work ethic. You've got to be good with people. You've got to be, I think you've got to be pretty strong in uh, with, with your written skills. There's obviously a contractual element to this. You've got to be pretty good at negotiating to state the obvious. And that, being, that can become quite difficult when you're young. I mean, how many young people are good negotiators? It's a, it's a life skill that you learn. You, I mean, you can, again, it's something that you could probably do a course on, but it's really something that you just get better at and get more confident with the more, that, the more that you do it. So I think I was certainly a more confident and able negotiator the more that I did it. But you've got to be instinctively interested in, in, in deals and in people. It's, uh, it's a tough skill set, and it's one that you can't – I'm convinced that you can't do a course to, to, to learn it. You, you really do have to observe. You can certainly understand the theory of it and know what you need to learn – but knowing what you need to learn and learning them are two very different things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm
1: guessing with with player management, you you want to sign the players when they're young. Um, And I'm just wondering, how did, how did you pick them out of, you know, the pool of players out there and then how do you approach them and their family? You know, when you're basically taking a leap on a, on a young player who could be something or could not be.
2: Yeah. Great question. Um, In Australia, they were, you know, we had the VIVO, we had the VIS and the AAS, and they produced an obvious. They almost did the talent ID for you to a certain extent. Now, of course, there are more players out there than just the select uh, 16, 15 to twenty that play in each of those areas. Um, but that was the that was an obvious that was an obvious avenue. So, you know, the, the youth teams that were getting selected at national and at state level, um, the Premier League, the national Premier League teams. Uh, were also interesting to watch. Yeah, you, you might remember a player called Matthew Leckie was picked from that league. Um, that was few, and Adrian Zara was another one. They're few and far between. They're the guys that probably didn't make it into um, an A-league youth academy and didn't make it into a VAS. So I've had to go and play with the men, and sometimes that's actually uh, better for their development in lots of ways. So it's there's no one way of picking them, there are some certain obvious lists, if you like, that you'd look at and you watch a lot of football, you know, whether it's um, going to watch A-League juniors, whether it's watching um, NPL under 21 teams or NPL senior teams. Uh, not so much the senior teams, I must admit. It's a bit of a beauty parade as well. Um they call it a beauty parade so it's no different to AFL really. AFL is much more structured because there's a there's a draft and you go through the TAC Cup, etc. And everybody knows who the players are. It's it, the concept is similar. It's just not as structured as that in in in, in soccer football. Um, i never know which term to use. I'm going to stick with football just to and I'll go with football for soccer and then I'll call it AFL just to avoid any confusion. So less structured recruitment, but the concept is the same. When you know the leading agents are who they are, um, and we present to the players, and there's a, there's a, there's got to be a personal connection. There's got to be a personal connection. You they, they they may know a player that you already manage. You may have a relationship with a coach who likes who you get on with who puts a word in. There's all sorts of different um, nuances to it, but ultimately it is a it's it's a sales pitch. It's a sales pitch, and the longer you've been in it, the more runs you've got on the board to justify what
0: you're saying. Richie, that's a terrific insight. I was wondering if you could expand on that in terms of explaining how a typical player contract works and what, what are the standard commissions that an agent will accept?
2: So that depends very much on the jurisdiction you're working in. So when you're in a, the salary cap environment in Australia, it's pretty unique. I think the only one I'm aware of in the rest of the world from a football point of view is the MLS in America. So when you're in a salary cap environment, what that means is that, and again, I can't speak too much for America, although I did do a couple of deals there, is that the, the contract is a set is in a set form contract. So you don't really have the ability to negotiate much apart from a few obvious, you know, the money, the length, et cetera. Um, and that's so that the powers that be in those jurisdictions can more easily police the contents so the FFA, back in the day when I was working in the A-League, would provide everyone's contract looks the same. The standard clauses were the same. You couldn't take certain things out, and there was an appendix at the back, and that's where you put the details in, if you like, how long it was, you know, if there are any bonuses, etc. terms of commission, again, um, depends very much. On, so in a salary cap environment, the fees were, were inside, uh, and in the A-League, I – Again, it, it varies from agent to agent and, and from, you know, day one of the A-League to where we are now has probably changed as well. Um, but anywhere from, I saw anywhere from 3 to 10%. Pick somewhere, I'd probably say 5% was normal during most of my time in the in, in the A-League. But again, you know, the A-League had rules around, which were different from the AFL rules, for example. So the A-League rules meant that, that the 5% was of the fixed base um, um, salary only. So even if you'd negotiated some pretty good bonuses in there, because that's viewed as non-guaranteed salary, the agent who negotiated that and done a really good job for their client couldn't benefit from, didn't benefit from a percentage of that. And that was very different from the AFL model who, who were allowed to benefit. So different, difficult to give you um, a set figure um, because just because of the different nature of, it's culturally different in each country. And the absence of a salary cap gives you much more, leeway to negotiate in a place like in a place like the middle east or china some of the some of the behavior um over there of some of the agents was was pretty extraordinary uh, but i shouldn't really pick out those jurisdictions i mean there are some famous mean, you mentioned harry early on and without going to the details of some famous stories about what happened with his transfer from liverpool to leeds whether they're true or not, I've got no idea. But it's a it, it, it's a it's a matter of negotiation. Is the ultimate answer, I guess, is the commission is never from one deal to another. When you're talking internationally, at least, will never be. It will never likely to be the same. And if there's a transfer fee involved, that changes it again. Uh, and is that?
1: Where, I was going to say, is that where you know you hear of all these massive EPL transfers, and then there being sort of like you know, obviously a fee for the player, and then agent fees. Almost being a major sticking point because they're in the millions. And it's like, that's just, that's so bizarre. You know, like the millions of dollars going to the agent for getting that deal over the line. Do you think that we've sort of lost control of those agent fees or are they almost worth it in a way?
2: I don't think we've lost control of them because, again, people will pay market prices. It's a bit like transfer fees. It might sound obscene and it is obscene. It is obscene to talk around a transfer fee of $100 million. But ultimately, clubs have not been forced to pay that; they've chosen to pay it. It's a commercial negotiation, and if they don't, if they think that price is too high, they won't pay it. And it's the same with the agents' fees. They perform a service. You know, the the, the, the players themselves have not got the skills, uh, the technical the technical skills and negotiation skills. They've not got the life skills. They've got them. They've got the desire to neg- or, or the contacts even to negotiate their own contracts. Um, and it's not a lot of different from you you know you use a travel agent you use a real estate agent you use recruit you use recruitment agents when you're trying to find a job a player agent is just a very specialized recruitment agent that, that that's clients are soccer players rather than being teachers or nurses or, or executives so they are they can be big numbers but Again, it's, it's about supply and demand. If your client is Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi, there's at any one time clearly going to be a lot, a, lot, a lot of people trying to acquire those people's services. So you can, you can charge a high fee for that. I think where the, where the opaqueness comes and where there's been some difficulty conceptually is when there's been suggestions that the player has not known Perhaps about the 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 amount of fees that his representative may be benefiting from, and there can be a suggestion then that hang on a minute, surely some of that money should have been mine. that seems like a lot for you. I'm kicking the ball, and that's a matter of um, your personal relationships and trust um certainly, there's never any situations in in my career where the you know player no, I know i didn't know. What um what commission I was earning in the same way that your fine if you have a financial planner or financial advisor you know you sign the waiver you see the documents they're making their commission from the superannuation fund or insurance policy they sold you no different um but the policing of it is a different matter altogether and of course agency doesn't have a great reputation in the same way that neither does neither do car salesmen or um or uh, or, or real estate agents I guess. But, but but it's for the same reason, which is a couple of bad eggs. People always want to use the the, the negative example and as a, as a, as a stereotype, and uh, that's really unfair. Obviously, I mean I, I I approached it, and so did everybody at ESP and TLA, from a a position of of integrity. You know, I a qualified lawyer. I took that really seriously, and so did most. So did the vast majority of, of agents and representatives across all sports, and it's. It's a shame that people want to use the negative examples, but they perform a they perform a really important service, not just to the player, but also to the the the, um, the clubs that the because the clubs generate revenue from transfer fees. And again, no one forces a club to accept a transfer fee. That's a commercial decision that club takes, unless there's a you know a, a, a trigger clause that's been inserted into a player contract, which again that club's agreed to. No one, no, nothing's ever forced. So. Yeah, I get a little bit annoyed sometimes when I see the commentary around. Oh, the agent forces the agent forces that clubs. It's a two way street. It really is. Clubs and players have got, um, I've got, I've got skin in the game and can
0: both bargain. You mentioned uh, stars such as Cristiano Ronaldo and other people like Serena Williams. These sort of people make the majority of their money through endorsement deals with brands. What are some of the different ways agents help players extend their income?
2: Yeah, so endorsements, um, you know, to, to wear, to wear, you know, whether it's Nike, Puma, Adidas, et cetera, is, is an obvious one. Um, and again, from an Australian point of view, that was pretty difficult because they weren't particularly high profile players. I mean, if you if you're if you're if you're a big brand in Australia and you're trying to get maximum exposure, clearly there are sports stars that would be bigger. Um, or sports that are, that are potentially um, more well-known and bigger than, than football unless you happen to be Harry Kewell, you know Tim Cahill but um, those tend to be obviously few and far between and they're the international stars that we're talking around so there's a there's a there's a big difference between your A-League you know with respect your A-League journeyman to your you know to, to, to John Aloisi you know John Aloisi would, was doing the head and shoulders ads you might remember on the back of I think it was around the 2010 World Cup And that was funny. That was a 2010 World Cup, bearing in mind he wasn't in the squad, but he was on the back of 2006 and the shirt above the head and the penalty celebration. So it's um, – and in the market that we're in now, economically, it's going to be harder than ever to do those deals, I would have thought. Um, And they really are only for the top guys. Media deals, again, depends who you are, but, you know, ghostwriting columns, you know, you'll see various players have got ghostwritten columns – um, social media is an interesting new uh, area where, where guys can now, you know, obviously publicize, you know, maximize the, the revenue they can get from their, whether, you know, their Instagram, for example, account. That's a huge developing area, which I think is, um, is fascinating to watch. Um, some guys have always got, you know, their, their, their media profiles far outweigh their actual achievements and ability. And they're making probably more money than guys who are much better sportsmen or sportswomen than them because they've mastered social media and they can talk and they can justify the, you know, the revenue by the eyeballs that they've got on their accounts and their clicks and their likes. And then again, some agencies, it depends how far you want to take it. you can provide this sort of ex- extended service pro- um, suite of service providers. So, you know, maybe it's real estate, maybe you've got financial planners that you can, that you can work with. So it depends on your philosophy of how you want to manage players Um we always wanted to take quite a holistic, broad approach and not just be transactional, but that I think was a point of difference for us. And I don't think I certainly wouldn't suggest that was the that was the norm. And even if you look if you look at a Premier League squad, if you look at an average, uh, I say, average English Premier League player, that's that's an unfair thing to say because they're, they're by far from average, but not a guy that plays for a national team, perhaps, but a guy that's you know maybe uh, starts off the bench. Um, That guy probably doesn't have many endorsement deals, if any, because there's so many to choose from, so many big guys to choose from. He might get free boots or he might get paid, you know, a small amount to wear for for an apparel contract. But um, are you really going to take the 21st guy from Aston Villa's list, you know, and pay him squillions to be your brand ambassador? Not really. So – Again, you mentioned Serena and Cristiano Ronaldo and they're great examples and, and you've got your Jordans and your Tiger Woods, but there's sort of them and then there's everybody else. And I think the everybody else, it's still pretty much just, you know, about your salary and your bonuses. I like what you said there about having
1: a sort of a holistic approach to to managing players. Putting money aside for a sec, what was your involvement in in your players like on a personal level and how much responsibility did you have in sort of developing them as
2: a person over, you know, their football ability. As I said, it we we sort of prided ourselves on taking an interest in, in that aspect of the players. You know, for two reasons. One is we genuinely care about the players. You know, you develop relationships, especially the younger ones. You you develop the, you know, got relationships with 15, 16 years old and you, and you do feel responsible. And then, you know, the the second part of it is, and I guess the self serving part of it is, you need people to be guy, you need get these guys to be balanced. Much, there is something unhealthy about the focus that young athletes are forced to have on their sport. You, you, that's evidenced by the fact that guys get churned, and you know the guys who come out at a young age, who've been signed, and come out, the you know they, they feel lost. There's mental health issues, so you, you don't want that to happen to your players. Um, either during their career, feeling, you know, having too much time on their hands in the afternoon and end up down the pokies, and, you know, gambling's a big problem in professional sports, or even if there's a, you know, their career ends prematurely, you want them to be set up. So the PFA did great work here, you know, and, and all player unions, I, for me, this is one of their core, their core purposes. And one of the things they do really well is encourage non football activity. But ultimately, these guys are individual human beings and they make their own choices. And there were some players that it didn't matter how many conversations you'd have, didn't care. you wouldn't do it, nodded, paid lip service. And it's probably the same guys that sit through all these education programs that, uh, that the AFL and the NRL run, but still end up, you know, getting arrested, you know, outside a kebab shop at two in the morning in an ISO zone. There are, there are some, some guys will get it and want to do it and some guys don't. But it was really... We, we we did take we did take our responsibility seriously, um, especially those young guys that were living away from home. And it's a really important role, like I said, of the player associations. Richie, we like to share all aspects
0: of jobs in sport. Can you give us an overview of the good, the bad, and the ugly for those thinking about becoming a player agent?
2: Yeah, so sure, <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the good, I mean, the, the, the highlights, the things I really enjoyed, that I look back on fondly, you know, negotiating a co- the first contract for a player, a rookie player, a 17-year-old, that's an amazing feeling. You know, the players are so happy, their parents are happy. It's probably the least valuable deal that you ever do. In fact, we didn't charge for those initial deals. So in, the minimum salary deals, we didn't charge for. But, the, you know, to get a toe in the door, that's amazing. You know, you think of how that, what that would mean to you. That would, they, they were great. They were great feelings. The other, you know, the good, you know, the buzz of a big deal, because um, as I mentioned before, you know how much how much effort goes into those, and all of the the frogs that you have to kiss to find a prince, you know, for the deal to drop, all the plays that didn't sign for you, all the negotiations that fell through, etc. So, I think on a per- personally, I think back to deals like Danny Al- Danny Allsop for Melbourne Victory to Qatar. That was the first sort of that was that was the first Australian to go to Qatar. That was a great deal for Danny. And, um, and really enjoyed that. Curtis good to Newcastle United in the Premier League was a great deal. again I mean it'd been a long time since an Australian had gone to to a Premier League club so that was great. Uh, similarly Luke Bratton to Manchester City that was a that was a great deal. we really enjoyed that was the first time that we'd been able to use the, the Manchester City group you know that global model that they'd developed. So that was great being able to experience that with Luke going to you know going to Man City's headquarters. Seeing the Lamborghinis in the car park, seeing the training ground, that did feel a bit otherworldly, and that was a that was a really great experience for Luke. And then, you know, does Alex Wilkinson to John, but guys had worked really hard. I mean, Wilco's one of those guys that has worked so hard and he was a bit of a and it, you know, he was never a superstar in the A League, he'd say that himself, but got you know, he stayed fit, worked hard, great guy, good leader, and then to be able to Get a a deal like that for a guy to go to – he played for John Book in Korea, won two championships there, went to a World Cup, played in a World Cup on the back of it, and no one would have thought that if you'd have said that five years ago about Alex Wilkinson. So they were were the good things. Now the bad things. (laughs) (laughs) The bad things. The bad things I always reflect on, the thing I enjoyed least, one of the things I enjoyed least was I often felt that I was probably – I guess the most qualified person in the room, in, in more often than not, in terms of you know academic qualifications, experience in the deals, you, but also the least respected at the same time. So sometimes you felt that the players or the parents, whoever it was, felt like you weren't working hard enough, that you'd rolled over, and at the same time, the other side of the table, you had the club representative who thought you were some sort of parasite, thought you were being um, unreasonable, disrespectful, you're a leech, you know, and I, I did feel. And, and when, you don't, when you don't really respect the guys on the other side of the table and you know you've worked really hard and you, you, you know you've got no questions about your own integrity, in fact, you're questioning theirs, for you to feel like that is, is you know, it's hard to take sometimes. And it probably goes back to the early point I made around, around resilience. It can, be, it can be soul-destroying to work really hard and have deals fall over. Um, it can be hard to work. You, you work really hard for a player, but they don't—they rec- don't necessarily recognize it. And leave, you know, leave your agency, go to another another organization. So there were some of the—they were some of the bad things, ugly, I guess. Ugly. The difference between ugly and bad. I think ugly's probably got almost a perver- perverse comic element to it. I remember some some horror stories from from travels in the Middle East and China, and elsewhere in Asia. I'm, I mean, if I, I. I've been in smoke-filled rooms at two o'clock in the morning trying to get a deal done when they've changed the key component you know, they've dropped the salary by 50% in the last minute because they think you'll take it anyway they're throwing the credit cards on the table to try and intimidate you um, yeah you've got the local you've got the local agent panicking you've got you know <laughs> you've got a shape wow. in one room and yeah yeah it's crazy and there's some there's some crazy stuff that goes on I mean players we had players that were going to a place like Iran. Who are basically, you know, were running out of the hotel and, de- and getting a taxi back to the airport because they couldn't, you know, didn't want to stay there a minute longer. Guys not being paid, you know, a, a green, you know, you'd you, you sign a contract and then, you know, guy just wouldn't get paid. And then, you know, you've, you've got to go through the process and going through a Chinese or a Thai or wherever it was, or you know, an Indian or Malaysian processes to to, to help them with that. And of course, you're the responsible for doing it and along with the PFA, but ultimately you've got that relationship. And so, you know, players, I've been in scenarios when players begging you to do deals. You know, I need to get out of the A league. I need to go to Europe. I need to go here. I need to go there. And you present it and they back out because I don't know, um, their their girlfriend doesn't want them to go or they've just signed the lease on an apartment. And you, you sometimes wonder, you know, you really do wonder sometimes It's, it's everything you can do to stop screaming occasionally. Um, well, listen, there were, there were some good times. There were some great times. But I must admit, towards the end of it, I guess it's like doing any kind of deals all the time. You know, that dopamine hit wears off and you have to do more and more. And it got harder and harder because the market changed. Uh, and it got harder and harder to do the deals. And in the early days, we were talking about Europe. And then it sort of shifted to the Middle East and it shifted to China and South Korea. And, and then it shifted to Southeast Asia and places like uh, M- Malaysia and Thailand and, and India. And I always felt that every time it shifted, from the west, every time it moved one, you know, east. With every shift, it got less professional. Each of the jurisdictions. So yeah, some um, some really some really great highs, um, but some pretty ordinary experiences as well. I think we could we can almost take it
1: offline. Some of those extra stories, we might have a chat after this, Richie. But <laughs> imagine uh, imagine you're back at university. You're just about to graduate. You really, really want to be a player agent, but a pandemic has just halted everything for you. What actions would you be taking uh, to set up a successful career in player
2: management now? So the first thing, I mean, to, to, to be a player agent as a graduate, as I touched on earlier on, is a pretty lofty goal. And in all honesty, I can't think of it. I never came across an agent who was younger than 30, 35. I think when I started, I was in my late 20s and I was always the youngest. I was always young and maybe that's one of the other reasons I left is I started to be one of the old guys and I could see myself being an old guy. I didn't want to be an old guy. But in (laughs) terms of being, you know, how did you get involved in that environment? um, I've obviously listened to some of your guys' podcasts before uh, and read some of your literature and you talk a lot about volunteerism. And that is the best way to get involved. You know, the toe in the door through volunteerism is the way. And it might not be, it's not necessarily about volunteering for a player management company, it might be volunteering in events, you know, volunteering in um, almost a an unrelated organization, but obviously broadly a sports organization, but but not not an agency itself, because you've got to you've got to think about what your point of difference is. The fact that you like sport and are a sports management grad does not make you unique. I mean, the fact that you are sat in a classroom with twenty other people doing the same thing shows you that and that's just at your university so the fact that you like footy whatever your code and the fact that you're a sports management grad does not mean that you are any different to a 100 150 200 people are going to apply for the same job that you see so you've got to think about what makes you different and you've got to make that point of difference yourself through your cv through your volunteerism um you've got to i think really work out where you want to be and this is this is i guess. Any, any stage in your career unless you know where you want to be it can be quite difficult and you can you can go down a, a, a bit of a wormhole by putting random experiences on your CV I think you need to be quite structured and quite planned about where you're trying to get to and let that inform those you know those internships those volunteering opportunities um, as I said before I've never seen a player management role advertised. And I don't think I ever will, because that's not how it works. So you've really got to think about how you can get a toe in the door. Maybe it's work, you know. Maybe it's like I said, vol- maybe it's through a sports apparel company, and and you end up on the uh, the relationship manager aspect of it at, at, at the other end. Guys that I can think of that I've got into it have been their legal advisors, they've been their accountants, they've been they've even been their real estate agents. They've been friends. They've been spouses. They've been um, siblings. Um, so it's really difficult to give any single piece of advice other than really think about how you're making yourself look different to everybody else, and that's not easy when you're when you're 21 years old. But um, it's not an easy, the reality is it's not that specifically talking now about player management and player agency. It is not easy to get into, so you really do have to um, define yourself quite you know tightly and well. And for anyone interested
0: in ways to differentiate yourself, we have a fantastic episode called Four Ways to Differentiate Yourself in Sport that you can look up within our podcast catalogue. Richie, I want to change gears quickly and jump over to your position now as CEO of Table Tennis Victoria. Firstly, what was the interview like for a CEO position? And then what is life like now for you in that role?
2: So the interview process um, was pretty lengthy. I think it was... Three personal face-to-face interviews, and again, depending on the size of the organisation, there are. It's. I mean, I've I've gone through psychometric um, interviews before, and there could be a presentation involved. So, um, I I I this particular job, I think, if I recall rightly, there were there were three three face-to-face interviews plus obviously the you know the the CV and the cover letter to start with. Um, but the higher the further you go on your career, the more the more that you can rely on relationships and, you know, obviously there are there are recruitment agencies that specialize in this area and you, over the journey, you get to know these people, they get to know you. So it becomes, the more senior you get, it becomes less and less about applying. I mean, of course you have to apply, but it, it it's a network, the, the, the networking sport can't be, the importance of that network can't be overstated. It really can't. Um, so, it will always be. It'll be slightly different for each for the size of a, an organisation. You know, there could be there could be a board involved. The board could delegate that to a nominations committee. But fundamentally, it's always going to involve. I suggest you know an initial chat, and then a second, more detailed chat, and then a the third, really detailed, probably presentation. And there could even be, like I said, there could even be some clarifications and, and some specialists um you know psych, the psychometric testing is fairly is, is pretty common at, um as, as you get quite high up and so when you look at that, that time frame what you're talking about there that can be that can be one that can be a few months so what, what sort of did,
1: did you have to present something to tabletina victoria and sort of how did that how long did that sort of take to to put together and was that a matter of weeks or was that a couple
2: of months as you just mentioned I can't remember whether I had to or not, but I'm pretty sure that I did. I'm going, to, you're testing my memory now. Um, I'm pretty sure that I did. Um, and how long did it take to put it together? Again, it's quicker. It, it When you know what you're talking about, this stuff you can pull together pretty quickly. It's not like you're writing an essay and you're trying to make it up and you're quoting the sources because it's in your head once you get to a certain level, obviously. Um, I mean, it's state of the obvious, but you have to understand. You have to do some research and understand where the organisation is in its cycle. I'm a big believer that, regardless of the organisation, the size of it, different organisations need different leaders at different points in their cycle. Sometimes you'll need a safe pair of hands. You'll need a. Sometimes you might need a smoother over, a diplomat. Sometimes you need a change agent, and I think I probably come into that ladder category when it comes to table tennis, Victoria. They'd had some table tennis people in the roles previously and they knew table tennis inside out. But the sport itself was probably coming to a, you know, probably reached a bit of a crossroads where its profile and its size didn't, you know, they weren't doing doing itself justice. So needed to bring in, I guess, some external experience and, and a fresh set of eyes. I think sometimes it can be if you're too close to a sport, it can be a bad thing. And credit to to the board. They that's a fairly brave step for a state sports organisation to take. But TTV did that, and I'm now two years in, and I'd like to think I've made some pretty significant changes. Despite the fact, obviously, I've been held up pretty significantly in 2020 by a, a little pandemic. But pretty happy with you know with the strategic plan that we put in place. Pretty happy with the team that we've got in the organisation. I'm pretty happy with what the plans look like going forward, but yeah, I you know just to reiterate that point, the research in the organisation that you're going into is essential, essential for your interviewing, obviously, but also essential. So you go into a role with your eyes open. You'll never know everything, but you really do want to understand as much as you can the landscape that you're walking into. Is it traditional? Is it changing? Is it declining? Is it increasing? You know, what's the board like? Is there a lot of turnover in staff? What do your commercial partners look like? You know, read the annual reports, that kind of thing. I mean, some of it sounds obvious, but um, it's amazing how many people don't do those basic things. When I interview people, it's amazing how little some people have prepared. And you can tell the guys who prepared and who haven't. And it's not that they know your sport any better. These are not table tennis aficionados. I'm talking about graduates now, which is obviously the target audience of, of you guys. Some grads have obviously spent a lot of time and they'll, you know, they'll quote things at me from the uh, from the annual report or from some other table tennis source that they've done, which is impressive. And some guys come and just take this really generic approach and it stands out like the proverbial. You know, you can really tell when people have I mean, I've even received, you know, I've received cover letters, dear volleyball, Victoria, dear badminton, dear table tennis Australia. <laughs> and you're like and I don't care if those guys got a 99% ATAR and went to Harvard, they're still not getting a job <laughs> because that's just, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that's unacceptable. What are, what are some of those, you know,
1: top three things that, that essentially you look for in grads now that just really stand out to you straight away that you think, great, you know, get them in? Like what are the top three things that you look for?
2: So, uh, uh, my answer to that was probably changed now to what it would have been about five or 10 years ago. I think the benefit of experience is I'm, I'm much more aware now of, you know, unconscious bias. I, my experience is my experience. And I think it's really important as a leader or anyone that's recruiting people to understand that just because people don't look like you doesn't mean that they can't achieve what you want them to achieve just because you've done it yourself in a different way. Um, so I've really learned to discipline myself Uh, and I guess it's not about being open-minded because you always like to think that you're open-minded but really really challenge yourself on it uh, and look set look a second time look a third time at a CV or um, or how someone presents to you so the things that stand out are that you know people's confidence there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance and obviously you don't want to go over that line but there's nothing worse than people not and you know giving you one word answers or you ask you're asking someone to think on their feet i i do that as a matter of course in any interview i'll just ask someone a random question that pops up in my head that they probably wouldn't have expected to um be asked yeah it's probably not even relevant um to 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 the actual job but you do that to see how they think, to see how they speak as people. How do you, you know, how would they interact with the, with the checkout assistant at Coles? How would they go if they, you know, bumped into a policeman, had to ask him directions? How are they as people? And if you can't, if you don't feel that link, if you don't feel that relationship and you don't get that little, um, that little zing, you know, there's no humor. Um, you don't want those people. Or I don't want those people in in, in my team because it's just going to be a slog. It's going to be a slog. So the other thing you've got to do, of course, with any job is look at the skill sets. And it's not just about bringing in people. So this is where the the flip side of that is. If you're just bringing people that look like you and get your sense of humor, you're probably just replicating yourself. So this is when the self-awareness piece comes in. So it's this balancing act between getting the skill sets that you need um, and getting people you would think will fit into your team, even if they aren't like you in fact it's probably good that they aren't like you i'm a big fan of that you know big fan you need diversity in your teams there's a great book that i read um he's actually believe it or not he's an ex-table tennis player and i didn't know it until i read his book but he's called matthew syed s-y-e-d and he specializes in organizational psychology especially in high performance and there's a book called black box thinking he's got a few actually and he talks a lot about diversity of of thinking so I'm, you know, a big fan of trying to get different people from different backgrounds, and it's often the least – you know, it's not, it's not always the most obvious person who's the best one for the job. But that's why you need to sit back, get a second opinion, bring other people into the process, and take your time with it. And if you need an extra interview, so be it. But I have very rarely in my time of interviewing people and recruiting people, whether a table tennis, Victoria, Cricket Australia, or, or whenever – It's very rarely the person who's on your shortlist as number one after the initial screening process that is ultimately the candidate they're successful. And I think that's good. I think that shows that you've been open minded enough to challenge that initial perception. And don't get me wrong, if that person happens to be a superstar and flies through it, brilliant. But in my experience, I don't think that's been the case ever. So challenge yourself, challenge yourself again, and just be really aware of those gaps that you're trying to fill. And, and be careful not just to replicate yourself because you're
0: familiar with it. I think that's a great insight to understand that you're never out of the game, even though you might think that you're not going to get the opportunity. Richie, you've uh, you've held a number of um, exciting positions during your time. Which one of them were you most excited to Get the job for and where were you at the time? How did you react? Who were you with? Came to hear how you reacted to your most exciting job.
2: I can think of two that spring to mind. When I I got appointed into the the talent manager role at um, Elite Sports Properties, as it was, um, my first child was, I think, just about to be born. And I was coming to, you know, the, the role in the previous organization, Proactive, was coming to its natural end. And I just had this phenomenal period. I was like a six-week period over Christmas and New Year when I think I got the I got the call from ESP to say yes. You know, pre-Christmas in like late November, mid-December, maybe it was. My daughter was born four days before Christmas, and my my start date with Elite Sports was going to be February. So I just had this beautiful, beautiful six-week period of been super excited about my job, this new work. You know, it was football. It was a sport that I'd played. Um, I got to work as a player. I had no clients, never done it. But these guys were backing me. And I'd got this, you know, beautiful little baby girl. And um, so it was a really beautiful period. I remember, remember that. And then the other one I remember is this latest one, the CEO one at uh, Table Tennis Victoria. And I remember that because I had a really awful back problem. So between leaving Cricket Australia and starting, I actually um, had a really bad disc problem and only narrowly avoided back surgery. So I was finding it really difficult to, to concentrate, to interview, to sit still, basically anything, to sleep, to do, to do anything. And I remember... I remember getting the news and I remember feeling uh, for about, well, it was with hindsight, but then that five, 10 minutes afterwards, I realized on reflection that the pain had gone completely. So it's amazing. And I, I, I didn't, I mean, the circumstances in which little left cricket Australia weren't great, not on a personal level, but organizationally, we'd gone through sandpaper gate. There was a level of redundancies that had happened similar to the ones that happened now for different reasons, obviously in COVID, and you know it was really sad a lot a lot of guys I'd been recruited with uh, had left you know my managers had left um and I love cricket cricket was my second sport up. My, you know being in england you play you play football in winter and cricket in summer, so I wasn't really ready to leave and I was pretty sad um probably didn't realize how sad I was to be honest at the time, and I'm sure that that actually had effect on my it's funny how your body reacts to to stress and i I'm pretty sure that my back um falling apart. Was not unrelated, and it's amazing that after I got the job at um, TTV, and you know there was a three, four, five week building period, whatever it was. By the time I started, I was entirely pain free. Um So yeah, they're, they're the two, they're the two that, that jumped to mind: the, the Christmas baby um, uh, and the play the first having to player management, and then the remarkable back recovery <laughs> at table tennis.
0: <laughs> it's amazing what table tennis can do for your health. <laughs> that's
2: right it's a sport for it's a sport for all gender neutral thanks for the plug Para paraneutral age neutral you're right it's a sport for all well well done for acknowledging that
0: absolutely well we'll hit you up for a table when we move into our sports great offices in the not too distant future no we problem. might wrap up. <laughs> we'll wrap up the episode there richie thank you very much for your your time tonight it's been extremely insightful to learn all the ins and outs uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of uh, becoming a player agent and then an insight into what it's like as a CEO and some of the processes you have to go through there. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
2: You're more than welcome. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Good luck with everything.
0: Thank you very much for listening to the P- SportsGrad podcast. A reminder to please hit subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Drop us a rating, preferably five stars, and leave us a review. It really does mean so much and it helps us put together the show for you with more sensational guests such as Richie. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Sports Grad Podcast. If you need help with your sports career, head to sportsgrad.com.au and download our free ebook today. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please give us a tag on socials at Sports